I'm Aaron Hinkin. Welcome to Life in the Balance, a monthly program here on WYPR where we talk with the people most impacted by Baltimore's public policies and we hear from those who've put themselves on the front lines of social change and policy reform. You can podcast this show and check out our catalog of past episodes at wypr.org slash life in the balance or on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform works best for you. I want to start today with a look at this study from the Baltimore Office of Promotion and the Arts. They released this last year. Uh, if you want to look it up, it's called Arts and Economic Prosperity 5, the Economic Impact of Nonprofit Arts and Cultural Organizations and Their Audiences in the City of Baltimore. Long title, but it basically says the nonprofit arts and culture sector here in Baltimore is actually generating a whole lot of money. How much? It's a $606 million industry supporting more than 15,000 full-time jobs and generating $54.5 million in local and state revenue. But here's the question. Who exactly gets these jobs? Who's benefiting from our thriving cultural sector? Are the arts equitable? Today on the show, we're going to look at those questions. We're also going to look at how the arts, especially poetry, can be a tool for activism. We're speaking with a number of local poets and performers who are using their art specifically for the purposes of social engagement and activism. Uh, reading and writing poetry has been shown to improve empathy, emotional stability, verbal skills, and critical thinking. We're going to be learning more about uh, student programs that nurture young poets and uh, encourage them to use their voices in productive ways. First up, I want to welcome to the program Lady Brian. She is the cultural curator for Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle, LBS. That's a grassroots think tank that advances the public policy interest of black people in Baltimore through youth leadership development, political advocacy, and autonomous intellectual innovation. And Lady Brian, thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me. Let's start by uh, having you uh, introduce yourself to our listeners. You're from Baltimore, yeah? I am. And uh, you're a lifetime pretty much performer, as yeah. I understand it. <laughs> uh, tell us a bit about how you discovered poetry and sort of how that took your life down the path that it's gone down. It's interesting. Uh, it sort of occurred by happenstance. There was a show um, that was on HBO when I was in middle school called um, Deaf Poetry Jam. And it was my jam. I loved watching that show. Um, and I, I watched it with my father. And I remember one night after watching it, uh, I sort of just went to the corner of his apartment. And I decided I'm going to write a spoken word poem. I'm going to do it just like Sonny Patterson, who was one of the featured artists on that show. Um, and I remember it was called My Ideas. And it was just <laughs> a collection of my thoughts about Baltimore City. And I read it to my father. And I, I know that it was bad. Now I know <laughs> that it was just horrible. But he was so encouraging. And he said, you know, this is amazing. And you need to keep writing. In fact, we need to find you some places to perform. Um, and I think that's indicative of my journey as an artist. I found so many people who were so supportive in giving me um, spaces and stages to express myself. That is sort of how I became sort of this community artist, if you will. I found myself in so many places performing poetry. Um, and then I went to Howard University and I really sort of sharpened my skills um, as a poet in the D.C. scene. Can I ask you to share a poem? today? Absolutely. Um, yes. I have a poem that is entitled, Starbucks is Coming for Me. My neighborhood isn't safe anymore. Things 
are changing. There are intruders invading these borders. I see them setting up shop on every corner. Cafes trying to corner the market, slicing up bread and dishing dough, delivering the morning fix like we would notice. Well, I'm putting everybody on notice. Starbucks is coming for us. And the macchiatos make me sick. Baristas blow me. Coffee beans grinds my gears because I hear Starbucks is working for the man. And lattes are a part of the redevelopment plan. Cinnamon in the air, daring me to swallow. White lines dividing tar-colored communities to they hollow. Yesterday, I smell cappuccinos in the air, so business suits are soon to follow. Men writing in loose leaves, drinking loose leaf tea, trying to erase me. No love for the cocoa. Unless it comes from a third world country where they got it for the low low. Organic chai in place of impoverished eyes. The Wi-Fi is free. A small fee while they gentrify your community. Trading in your mug shots for mug shots. But who could be mad at pumpkin spice? The hood is at its boiling point and they just want to put us on ice. The type that will milk a mocha city white and sugarcoat the strife. Steam rolling the streets while steam milk foams on heat and express so soon you'll be black, surrounded by white, domino, or get delivered to a new postal zone like dominoes they've come to cut off the competition and decaf the legs you standing on. The shorty in the logo looks like white supremacy. Whipped cream on a brown brew is their idea of diversity, which is to say, White will always come out on top while people of color forever at the bottom, heated. Tell me, why are communities always dark, dismal, and depleted for real? Forget them cups of joe and them $5 paninis with their tomato, mozzarella, and pesto. See, there is leverage in these beverages. So beware of the caffeine because you see a Starbucks pop up and you know the developers are coming. Lady Brian, cultural curator for Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle here on Life and the Balance. Um, you're doing this work following in these footsteps uh, under the auspices of Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle, mm-hmm. LBS. Talk about that organization, uh, how it came about, what you all do. So LBS has been around since uh, 2010. It was started um, at Towson University, actually. Now, I went to Howard University, but uh, the folks who created LBS uh, went to Towson. Um, most of us were debaters um, in high school, so that's the connection that many of the founders and myself have. Um, and so it, it see um, and and debate uh, policy debate go hand in hand, and how. At some point, you have to leave the theoretical sort of fiat world of debate and talk in real terms and do something in, in the real world. And so how how can, you know, the question was, how can we take the skills that we're learning in policy debate and actualize real change in Baltimore City? And that was the aim of, of, of LBS. Um, and it, it, it was a, a mechanism to a conduit to take all those skills and put them into practice. Um, and so, you know, they definitely, uh, 
stirred some things up at Towson. And then once they graduated, the organization sort of grew with them. And it is now, um, you know, a formal grassroots think tank in Baltimore that is pushing legislation forward on behalf of black people in the city. Um, And so, you know, we've worked on a number of things, including police reform, bail reform. Um, You know, during the Freddie Gray moment, you had a lot of people talking about the law enforcement officers bill of rights. But before um, the uprising happened in Baltimore, LBS was already pushing for changes to the law enforcement officers bill of rights. There was a young brother who was strangled by an off-duty police officer um, named Christopher Brown out in Baltimore County. And LBS was able to work with his family to create what's called Christopher's Law that sort of has created mandates around what off-duty police officers are allowed to do when not in uniform, right? And also about making sure that they have training Um, emergency training because the young boy was strangled, but he could have been resuscitated if that off-duty officer had that kind of training and was up to date. And so it it, it was just about making sure um, that safeguards are in place when officers are engaging civilians. And so there are just many things that that LBS has been a part of. There was a a youth jail slated to be built some years back in LBS, as well as many other organizations were a part of, um, um, pushing back to stop that youth jail from being built. And so, you know, LBS just stands at the front line, but particularly looking at legislation and lobbying as a way to change the material conditions of black folks in Baltimore. And as an artist um, in the collective, right, I'm, I'm really tasked with looking at how art and policy and legislation all interplay. Um, and I think the first time that that's really been realized in a in a Um, serious way um, is this work with the creation of Baltimore and Maryland and the nation's first black arts and entertainment district um, along the Pennsylvania Avenue corridor. Um, And so LBS has been leading that effort, uh, myself in particular as the spearheading individual. And um, it's, it's, it's been an amazing process to be able to think through how art can lead to transformation within a community and how um, policies can be designed to support that work. Lady Brian, it's been uh, enlightening and inspiring to talk with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Lady Brian is a performer, poet, activist, artivist, and a cultural curator for Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. You're listening to Life in the Balance. I'm Aaron Hankin. After the break, we are joined by a self-labeled poetic public sociologist and a young Baltimore poet to talk about the ways young people can change the face of their communities through the spoken word. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Life in the Balance. I'm Aaron Hankin. Today on the show, we're discussing the effect of the arts, especially poetry and uh, how artistic outlets can change the course of a person's life. We're joined now by Dr. Nalia Kaya, Assistant Professor of Sociology at Montgomery College, Community Liaison for Critical Mixed Race Studies Association, and Facilitator for the TOTUS Spoken Word Program at the University of Maryland. We're also joined by uh, Michael Hatcher McLaren. He took TOTUS himself. He lives in Baltimore. He has a poetry book and uh, also used poetry to build community during an art collaboration between Augusta Fell Savage and University of Maryland students that resulted in the Be More Than Story exhibit, which was shown at the Lewis Museum. Welcome, both of you, to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So you heard me uh, say TOTUS a few times in the introduction there. Uh, Dr. Kaya, uh, explain what TOTUS is. This is not an acronym. 
No, it's not. Um, it actually has a meaning of whole, all, together, one. Um, and so the program was started back around 2012 at the University of Maryland as a collaboration between Residence Life, the Inclusive Language Campaign, and the Office of Multicultural Involvement and Community Advocacy. And so it really was about exploring the power of words, um, the origins of words, having conversations about um, power and privilege and oppression and connections to uh, terms. And so the class is kind of half social justice orientation um, and half crafting poetry storytelling. And so it's not necessarily about creating a professional poet, so to speak. Um, but what's really unique is that students from all disciplines that would never ever meet or come into contact with each other on campus come together in this small class. And over the course of the semester, we really become a family, um, different religions, different racial backgrounds, different genders, different different interests. And so we're talking about these really difficult topics that are going on in society. And you have all of these various viewpoints. Um, but folks are really coming together through community agreements about how we're going to discuss these topics and finding commonalities across a difference and also acknowledging that sometimes those commonalities just won't exist. And that's OK. And we can respect um, different viewpoints. Michael, I want to turn to you now. Talk to me about um, your background as a poet and maybe how you uh, crossed paths with Dr. Kaya and got involved in this TOTUS program. Um, well, okay, so it's a long story, I guess. Um, well, I've been writing poetry since, like, middle school. Um, and, but, like, kind of not really, like, as a extensive thing. I was more, like, trying to write, jot down thoughts, trying to put together things. Like, it was sort of, like, speaking to myself um, in a way that I didn't really know how to speak to other people about anything that was going on in my head. Um, but when it came to, I think it was like my junior, senior year, um, I I heard about TOTUS and I was overly excited because I had really just started to get back into, I guess, trying to uh, elevate how I wrote my poems or elevate how I performed poetry. I didn't really perform until my freshman year of college um, for the first time, and I was like, oh, man, I, I really enjoy this. Um, it was a super vulnerable experience, but I really, really enjoyed it. And then knowing that there was a whole course dedicated to performing and writing poetry, oh, yeah, I had to be a part of it. I had to be a part of it. And I luckily um, got to have Nalia as my teacher, and she's just helped me like evolve the way that I think about putting words together and evolve the way that I put my thoughts onto the page and the way that I bring myself onto the stage in order to perform the poem. So, um, yeah, she's amazing. She's always been there to bring me on to different projects. I hear you talking about how there's a feeling of vulnerability when you perform in front of an audience. Um, it's probably, I imagine, when it goes well, <laughs> also really empowering. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. I um I would say like a lot of a lot of my poems are not, I guess, poems that people think that you would perform on stage, I guess. Um in a way that they're not always happy go lucky. Um most I would say every single time I perform I've cried on stage. And but there is something about that process and something about that release that is really elevating to like how I feel in the moment. Like, it's it's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to talk about things that um, make me really vulnerable or make me 
really scared or anything like that or make me really sad. Um, but after I perform it, I feel I feel so I feel so much more free in that tone in that moment. With that preamble, <laughs> I wonder if I can ask you now to uh, consider um, performing a, a piece for us. Oh man! Okay. Well, Dr. Kaya and I will turn our mics off and we'll, we'll hand it over to you. Okay, sure. Um, so I guess um, one of the poems I was thinking about uh, reading today has to do with just uh, being a transmasculine person in the world. Um, I like to use my poem poetry to talk about political things. Like That's why we're here today. So um, here we go. Okay. <laughs> so it's called uh, Stall Doors. I don't walk into bathrooms unafraid. I also don't want to write a poem about how I don't walk into bathrooms unafraid. Because how many times are we going to talk about trans people in bathrooms? Everyone is concerned my dick is the size of the blade of the pocket knife I don't carry anymore. And that's not because I'm unafraid. But rather, I'm hoping nobody will ask me questions when they see my feet facing forward. I just want to keep moving forward with the conversation and not always talk about where we have bowel movements, but rather the lack of movement I saw in his eyes when he told me he almost killed himself last week. Not just because someone stopped him on the way to the bathroom, but that no one stopped him on the way to his attempt. He's not the one who's wearing a dress on the door, and even if he was, you don't get to tell him he's not a man. You don't get to tell us we're not men because of the way we situate ourselves in the stalls, hoping to be barriers against haunting feelings of unsafety. I don't want to talk about being afraid to go into a bathroom, yet it feels about the same as going anywhere else. My heart beating against drum surface, trying to stay steady as I rock back and forth, praying for protection. I walk through city streets and I think, what if they see me as they peer through cracks and stall doors? It's not healthy to have this much paranoia. Yet when you see me walk in calmly, you think I'm not darting for my safe haven, hoping the locks on the stalls work right. I just want to be all right, doing the things I do, being the me I've always known. Saying hello and hoping my voice doesn't tremble because I'm afraid, even if I don't show it. Even if I don't pause when I walk up to that men's room door, I'm always silently wondering what's beyond it. Michael Hatcher McLaren, thank you. Um, how's it feel to perform that oh, piece my, on the radio? My heart's racing. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, Dr. Kaya, when you hear a piece like that from a student, talk to me about what goes through you. Poetry saves lives, literally. Yeah. Um. I've walked through some of Mike's journey with him, and I honestly, truly believe poetry has saved his life in, in instances. And I've seen it other students. I mean, they go throughout the day on campus after Freddie Gray is murdered, after Lieutenant Collins is murdered on our campus in a hate crime, and class goes on as usual, but not in TOTUS. We stop. We talk about it. You can process it. You can bring every identity that you have to that space. And um, I think that's one of the biggest, most powerful things about about poetry is it's a safe 
place in art allows us to talk about things that are otherwise deemed taboo or unacceptable to speak about in society in general, but particularly in front of, of strangers, right? And it's not just about the poet, because you never know who's in the audience, right, who hasn't been able to, to share that story. Um, and it might not even be based on the same exact situation, but it could be they've felt that before, right? It, whether it's race or gender or what, whatever they're going through, um, people find the common and it's that connection and I think that human interaction that people are looking for that sitting down and being actively listened to and heard um, and actually people wanting to know if you are okay not just to get that oh yeah I'm good and and keep going on so um, yeah every time I hear Mike perform I'm just I'm amazed by him I'm proud of him um, and and I'm glad that he's here. I wonder if you both might think about this idea of how a poem can address a social or a political issue in a way that like a public policy lecture or a panel discussion just can't do, the prose can't do. What's What do you think is unique and powerful about poetry as a mode of communication? Um, you really get to see the person. I think you you get to see the person that the policies affect. Um, like i've I've also performed poems about suicide and and talking about reform in school systems and how we talk about bullying and things of that sort. And it's you could have a lecture on it, sure. And you can say these are the problems, but you don't always get to see the faces and hear the voices of the people who it really affects. You don't get to know how they feel after someone pushes them to the ground or after, they have swallowed too many pills, but they survive afterwards or or like anything like that. You know, like you don't really a lecture is so disconnected in a way that a poem is not. You're always going to find a way to connect to somebody when you when you hear them telling you their own story. And a lecture just isn't able to do that in the same way. I would 100% agree. Um, When I first started facilitating poetry, it was actually um, with the Black Prisoners Caucus at the Washington State Reformatory. Um, And so it was uh, folks who were incarcerated. And one of the things I have been and I'm still very passionate about is the prison industrial complex. Um, You know, it is modern day slavery. And so uh, trying to, one, destigmatize the folks that have been incarcerated and are incarcerated and for their stories and voices to be brought out. And so one of the most effective ways I thought that could be done when I was uh, in college back in Washington State was to take their poems and bring them to my campus and to talk about the men in the ways that I knew them, not as inmate 9975, whatever, but as, you know, this is, um, you know, Danny, this is so-and-so, and to share how they ended up there and how so many of us could be in that same spot, depending on the circumstances that you found yourself in growing up. And so... I, the reaction that I got in that manner was not the reaction you would get from a lecture of talking about this is the history of, you mm-hmm. know, incarceration in our country and so on. But it, it was students coming up, fellow students at that time, you know, saying, hey, my brother's been incarcerated and I'm too ashamed to tell anybody because I know mm-hmm. the stigmas that are placed on people. Um, and to hear someone talk about this and share these stories, it just it affects, as Mike said, people in a totally different way. And it cuts to that emotional human human part that we all have. Michael, I want 
want to give you a chance to talk about the Be More Story exhibit. Explain what it is, uh, how it came together, and what its impact has been. Um, so it was like a collective of working with um, high, middle school, right? It was high school. High school, okay. Um, yeah. I, I remember high school. <laughs> yes, it was high school, high school students. And getting to work with them on like how to how to how to do poetry, I guess, right? Um, and I mean, a lot of them had written poetry before, but also some of them it was their first time, and they really just like helping them build that confidence to know confidence to know like your story matters, and like you don't have to censor yourself in maybe ways that like in an essay or something like that that you would have to do, but. This is your time to tell your story, and you can do it whatever the way you want. Just, like, definitely feel confident in that and perform that knowing that it matters. And it was amazing to work with those students. Um, everyone got to perform. We got to go around the circle. It was fantastic. Um, and I, I felt so privileged and so, like, blessed to have been a part of that because I never had that experience when I was in high school. I never had someone tell me that my story mattered. Um, and that I could perform it, and I could write it down, and it means something. So it was really cool to kind of come back from grad. I had already graduated college at that point, and to come back and be like, oh, man, I get to work with these students who, like, have all these ideas and so creative, and I get to share a piece of me with them, and they get to share pieces of them with me. Like, it was phenomenal. I, I, was, so, I was so happy that Nalia, like, asked me to be a part of it. It was really great. So, Dr. Kaya, in the TOTUS program, you are uh, incubating, cultivating, generating a lot of talented poets. Um, what do you teach those young poets about navigating their way uh, professionally? Um, people make uh, money in this profession, and people, I guess, probably have the potential to be exploited as well. Yes. Um, th I think that's something that not just myself, but uh, as I was doing my dissertation, I found a lot of the artists um, in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. You know, it's a huge spoken word scene. And a lot of us have, uh, as we say, infiltrated the institutions. <laughs> um, and so what's important then is to ensure that our students don't become exploited um, or even if you're not in a, in a academic space, uh, whatever space that your community members aren't being exploited, right? And so as you start to get requests for performances or for storytelling or facilitation and workshops, ensuring that they understand that our, you know, our folks are not doing this for free, right? There's been a whole lot of free work that's been done throughout history, and that's not going to continue to happen, especially when they're profiting off of it in, in many ways. And so that's extremely important to me that whenever someone has a request when I brought students on for the Be More project, I made sure that the University of Maryland paid my students to do that work. Um, you know, when I bring them with me for other things, I, same thing. They need an honorarium. They're not free labor, <laughs> you know. And so I think those of us that have infiltrated the institutions, that's part of our work to continue to do. That's something that falls on us. That's our responsibility. Yeah, for sure. Um, along, with, along with finding your own voice comes the sense of uh, seeing the value in your own voice as well. Yeah, for sure. Like, for a while, I was more than willing to just go to places and, like, just like either perform or just talk about it and go home. And I guess, but I, every time I went home, I'd be drained. I'd be tired. 
I'd want someone to talk to, <laughs> you know what I mean? But I also wanted to know that I I wouldn't just continue to have to keep doing this, right? Because at the end of the day, that might have been time that I could have been working and, like, getting paid for something, like, unfortunately, it be a 9 to 5 or something, but that I dedicated time to do this thing that meant something to me and hoping that it at least meant something else to someone else, too. Um, and unfortunately, like, it's... Poetry does pay, but it, it doesn't always get recognized as something that pays, so... You're performing and you're putting your soul onto the stage and you go home with nothing in your hand. <laughs> and that can be hard after a while because, I mean, obviously people, we're doing this because we love it. But at the same time, we're also, it'd also be nice for other people to notice that it takes a lot of work and to pay us for it. <laughs> yeah, and I think compensation can come in various forms too, right? So sometimes it's connecting that person maybe to a publisher, to mm. a book deal. Maybe it's something in, in that form. But the biggest biggest misconception and thing that, that would bother me is everybody says, oh, we're giving them a platform. I said, they're amazing. They have their own platform already. <laughs> okay, they really don't need you. You want them, right? And so that was part of like teaching our students to advocate for themselves, you know? I mean, they're might be a time where you turn something down because it it really is not beneficial um, for you in any way. Um, And that's not to say, as as Mike said, we all do this because we love it. We don't make millions of dollars off of it. Um, But it does matter. Your time matters and you matter. Before I let you guys go, Michael, let me turn to you and ask you to share some practical advice. Uh, Maybe uh, some young folks are listening to the program. Uh, They're trying their hand at poetry and they're trying to find their own voice. What advice do you have um, in that search, that pursuit, finding your own voice? I've heard you speak about not censoring yourself, about being honest with yourself, about being vulnerable. I'll let you, uh, uh, I'm going to turn it over to you for some advice. Um, I guess, yeah, I mean, that that's probably the biggest thing I did learn is don't be afraid to be vulnerable. Um, your stories do matter. Um, and there are people listening and waiting to hear it, and there are people who aren't willing to say it themselves who need someone to somewhat say it for them and to encourage them that they're not alone. And I feel like if you're a young artist out here um, trying to get started or trying to continue, just know that you aren't alone. There are definitely people who share your story, and they need to hear your story because ultimately... It bring it does bring communities together. Like it does. It without a doubt. I've performed multiple times, and someone come up to me afterwards and be like, "Thank you for performing that," because I didn't know how to say it myself. And if there's more young people willing to do that, then there's more lives that will be willing to be saved, and there's more community that is able to be built through those stories and through those performances. So keep at it. Be vulnerable, and it's you're not alone. Baltimore poet Michael Hatcher McLaren here in studio with uh, Dr. Nalia Kaya, assistant professor of sociology at Montgomery College. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you. You're tuned to Life in the Balance here on WYPR, where we've been talking this hour about the effect of poetry and the arts on social and political issues in our city. Coming up, we're joined by Executive Director of the Greater Baltimore Cultural Alliance, Jeannie Howe, to learn how our city is trying to foster and grow our artistic 
institutions. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Life in the Balance. I'm Aaron Hinkin. Our conversation continues now as we're focusing in on how Baltimore is embracing the arts as a means of connection and a tool for social activism. We're joined in this final segment of the program by Jeannie Howe, Executive Director of the GBCA, Greater Baltimore Cultural Alliance. And Jeannie, thank you for being with us. It's my pleasure, Aaron. Thanks for having me. I want to start off by uh, giving you a chance to uh, tell our listeners about GBCA, what it is, and what you all do. Well, we know that all people want to live in communities where they have a really rich arts and culture environment. And GBCA helps arts and culture organizations and artists to thrive here in the Baltimore region. And we do that by advocating on their behalf and working on issues of equity and inclusion and offering a wide range of sector services from marketing to capacity building and really raising awareness about what the arts and culture sector is doing and the impact that they're making. That's a lot. It's a uh, lot. <laughs> to, let, let me uh, let me ask you to get specific. Talk about some of the programs uh, that you've got going on right now that you're most excited about. Sure, sure. Thank you. Um, well, two things I, I'd like to let let folks know about um, that are happening right now, and one is our Urban Arts Leadership Program, which is a, it's a it's a fellowship program for aspiring arts administrators of color. And I know you and I were earlier talking about equity and inclusion, and one of the things that we understand here in Baltimore and throughout the country is that the leadership of arts organizations simply doesn't reflect the population. And here in Baltimore, because we are a 65% African-American city, it's very acutely felt. So this program helps to offer some training to emerging leaders who are either in their senior year of college or just graduated, and helps them uh, also to make connections and networking into organizations through a Um, five-month fellowship. So they're placed at organizations like the Walters Art Museum, um, Jubilee Arts. Uh, We've had folks at Center Stage and a variety of organizations um, currently at Maryland State Arts Council. And we're in our fifth year, and what we're really seeing is that it has really helped to to launch folks' careers. And now we've been doing it long enough that some of our emerging leaders are becoming leaders of their own in organizations and going on to second jobs um, post-fellowship. They're working at places like the Maryland State Arts Council, Maryland Citizens for the Arts, the Kennedy Center, um, the National Museum of Women in the Arts. They're really um, doing amazing things, and some of them are progressing in their careers as artists or continuing their education. So that's been incredible. As an organization, Greater Baltimore Cultural Alliance is like a a quasi-governmental organization? I mean, help me understand what what you are as an organization, like where the funding comes from. Sure, sure. Yeah, actually, we are not quasi-governmental. What's really sort of unique about GBCA is that we are completely independent. We are a membership organization, and we are really beholden to no one except our members and the broader cultural sector. And, of course, to provide great stewardship to our funders as well. Um, most of our funding right now comes from foundations. We do get money from uh, Maryland State Arts Council, who's been a wonderful supporter of our organization and also of our Urban Arts Leadership Program, and then um, some very generous individuals as well. So we have a pretty well-rounded 
um, dynamic of our funding, but we are not. We just are not that place that has to um, be politically beholden or beholden in other ways. So that's one of the reasons that GBCA is so actually vital to our members and why organizations from the largest to the smallest find us really valuable to work with. Because when issues come up that are sometimes politically sensitive or might be difficult for them as individual organizations to move into the front position on, GBCA can represent the community, the group, um, and has the space to be able to have those kinds of dialogues or ask those kinds of questions or create challenges or not create the challenges but answer the challenges that we might be seeing. You've spoken about the need for African-American leadership in arts organizations um, and the sort of programs that you're um, making available for folks to sort of go that route. Just how far are we from arts equity in this city? Wow, that's a big question. Um, I think we're pretty far, but I think it depends upon the ways in which we can accelerate the progress. Uh, I don't think it's uh, entirely a pipeline problem. In fact, I think it's as much a problem with inside the culture of organizations as it is an issue of identifying great candidates. And that's another feature of what we're trying to accomplish is to say that, and, and, and by the way, the organizations that we work with, they have to apply to be able to get into this program. Um, and they demonstrate a real hunger to be able to do um, a stronger job in making a more inclusive workforce. And part of what we do is just to really talk about um, introducing equity inclusion work with them so that they can develop tools to um, have a more equitable way of approaching um, identifying, recruiting, hiring, retaining um, employees of color because it's uh, we might we might be able to really uh, help strengthen the pipeline. There are amazing people. There have been amazing um, young leaders out there who can fill these roles. But you know they have to ask themselves, what is it going to be like for me to enter an organization where I am the only of you know my in the way that I would if I was going into the organization as the only woman, and to be challenged in the way that um, that makes you challenged. Um, so really looking at it from both sides of the coin and knowing that um, the organizations here, although there's a lot of work to be done, I see organizations moving more quickly than they have in the past. I think we all feel a great sense of urgency about this. Um, I think about who's going to be my successor someday because I imagine I won't be at GBCA for my entire lifetime. Um, and what it what it means to really create an environment where there are a lot more opportunities for folks to enter the field or to take on leadership positions. And when you add those opportunities together, the numbers get big. I mean, I referenced a study at the beginning of this program from uh, the Baltimore uh, Office of Promotion of the Arts. In this city, the nonprofit arts and culture sector is a 606 million dollar yes. industry mm-hmm. more than 15,000 full-time jobs yep yep and that's just in Baltimore City yeah. you know when you push it out to the region the numbers grow even more um, it is a hugely important part of the city it's one of the reasons that we get concerned about um, a lack of arts journalism so thank you for your arts journalism it's really appreciated um, because of you know the way the world has gone the way reporting has gone um, because we need to increase understanding about the impact of the field. And if you look beyond the economic impact, 
to the ways in which um, arts and culture can be essential to a community who has so many of its residents having experienced trauma, for example. And, and Lady Brian might have talked about that relative to spoken word. Um, some of the work that Kenneth and Kenneth Morrison and Dumar Baltimore are doing is very essential. So the ways in which it's woven into the fabric and which the work is already happening here. Um, and I think that uh, I can't speak for other communities, but I imagine that there's a level of frustration amongst people who have been doing that work, like um, uh, the Mamas at Womb Works, for years and years and years. Um, and, you know, uh, this being uh, now such an issue, equity and inclusion being such an issue to the forefront, um, and really trying to make sure that those folks are recognized and are getting um, the opportunity to have uh, what the, what they're doing, the value of what they're doing lifted up and for people to have a better understanding of that work too. As I hear you talking about equity and inclusion, let me uh, give you a chance to share some practical information then on that subject. You've got on your website a variety of resources for artists in the area. Talk about uh, a few of those resources, how folks can get in touch. Sure. Great. Thank you. Um, well, one of the things that we're doing, so we, equity and inclusion is one of our three areas of focus, but we like to believe and are really working very hard and on a continuous basis for it to be woven throughout what we're doing. And one of the programs that we have is the Baker Artist Awards, the Baker Artist Portfolio now. And um, we've made some changes to that uh, to try to be able to elevate the visibility of more artists that we've created. There's always been finalists, but we've never promoted them before, so we're creating really great opportunities to um, promote many more artists through the finalist process. Um, we are going out, and so so I should back up for a minute. The Artist Portfolio is um, an amazing site. We already have, for this round, which uh, is open until December 17th, we already have 600 artists on the site, and we get between 800 to 1,000 every year. Those artists are viewed on the portfolio, which is gorgeous, um, by people all over the world. And, we, and, and so as soon as I say this, you'll ask me which countries, but we know that it's been viewed by um, people in all but two countries in the world. And I can't wow. say which two countries they are. But um, but those are curators. Those are um, people who work in creative industries. They are collectors. We know artists are contacted by collectors there. So it's really important. Um, if we're going to have a real range of what the picture of arts in Baltimore is, for that to be really representational. So we're working on that by discipline. We made a lot of changes that would affect and help artists who are writers to, um, to really use a vehicle that's very visually oriented. And um, we've been doing a lot of information sessions in a lot of different communities. Um, we have training. Folks can come into our office a couple of days and, and do um, workshops with our staff and just sit with their laptops and get some technical assistance. And we're also um, trying to make sure that some of the legacy artists who I was talking about earlier have the opportunity to be represented there because they really should be represented on the site. So, for example, Ernest Shaw, who we just recently lost, had been in the processes with his wife of um, setting up a, a portfolio on the site and to think about how um, this is another way in which his important work in Baltimore can be documented for the long haul and, and for the picture of what's happening in Baltimore. So I hope that's helpful. We hope all artists will consider doing that. It's all disciplines, musicians, um, writers, actors, um, artists, 
visual artists, so I really encourage folks to get on there. And particularly folks who are new to Baltimore and they want to see what's happening here, it's a great introduction because sometimes I think people feel like, well, I know there's a lot of artists here. I don't know who they are. I don't know exactly how to find them. But you can connect directly with artists through the site. It's a cool site, and mm-hmm. and and people are inclined to want to join and mm-hmm. put their profile on there because there right. are prizes. Yes, right, right, right. Not to mention that there are <laughs> prizes, and every year we give about ninety five thousand dollars. We have now um, the the we now have organized it so that artists in every discipline, which this was also um, uh, an effort to be more inclusive. Um, so every an art, one artist in every discipline gets a ten thousand dollar prize, and these are awards for excellence. They're not project related. They are you know there you can see what the the guidelines are for it on the site, but um, it's really like your work is amazing. You've shown us a really good example of it. We see that your expertise and your artistry um, here, we want to support your work. Uh, one of those six artists who gets a $10,000 award is further adjudicated for an additional 30000 So we now give one $40,000 award, which is now the largest art prize in area. And the criteria? The criteria is um, is artistic excellence, a mastery of craft, um, uh, you know, an, an exhibition of um, a commitment to overall a long haul, mostly for puppets, not so much for emerging artists, although we encourage emerging artists to be on the site so that their work can be documented throughout their process. Um, and it's adjudicated by uh, other artists and experts in the field in each one of the disciplines. Um, you have to be uh, 18 years old, um, and you have to uh, live in the Baltimore region, which is Baltimore City and the five surrounding counties. I can only imagine that there are several listeners who've got their pencil and paper ready. Go ahead and give the website. So um, you can go to the Baker Artist Portfolio site, or you can go to baltimoreculture.org, which is the site for the Greater Baltimore Cultural Alliance. That's baltimoreculture.org. You can find all our services there, including the Baker Artist Awards. And just remember that the deadline to put your portfolio up is December 17th. So we'd really like to see you get your work on the site. It is a gorgeous um, tool, uh, so good, in fact, that a number of our artists use it as their websites. Um, so it gives you access to a technology um, that you don't have to create on your own and to um, an infrastructure. And it's really an ecosystem of artists that's being promoted throughout the world. Jeannie Howe is executive director of the Greater Baltimore Cultural Alliance, GBCA. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Aaron. Really great to see you. You've been listening to Life in the Balance. I'm Aaron Hankin. We're going to wrap up the show today by turning the microphone over to our guest, Lady Brian, who we met earlier in the program. She's going to send us off with a piece titled Sugarcane Smile. My mama got a sugarcane smile. Southern sweetened iced tea, hint of lemon in her kiss. My mama loved me like home-cooked meals. Slow-roasted conversations. Leftovers in the corners of my mind like I remember. She gave me cheese curls like teething rings to place between my gums and satisfy my crying. She twizzler twisted my thick hair with globs of blue magic make me Sunday fresh. My skin hot fudge, she caramel at best. My mama got skin like raisin bran. 
where moles decorate the flakes of her melanin, my mama, cornbread and cola, candy yam and cabbage, banana pudding and cobbler, food so good on the taste buds and make her feet swell. She wobbles sometimes like the pendulums on grandma's clock that do tell time. Learned it from all the times great grands was cooking for church's second service. Learned to praise God through baked mac and cheese and pray. My daddy come home from the service, but he dead and gone now. And my mama in combat mode, her body covered with infections like chocolate coated candies, sugar level 501, which is to say she got stroke caught in between her teeth. A1C14, veins constricting then collapsing like salivating glands when you taste that cheesecake that's too rich and saccharine. Mama so sweet, it's sickening. They had to cut cysts from out her breast like she had cavities within her chest and I'm scared. That if she don't water down the syrup in her spirit, they will amputate her limbs and ligaments leaving her bitter to the taste. All sour in the face. Salty tears replace the stars that twinkle and burst in my mama's iris. My mom is hot cocoa when my soul grows cold from all the pain in this world. All gummy bear dimples and a heart made of pecan swirls. My mama, she got a crockpot type hug. The type that fills the house with aroma. My mama fill me up every time I'm around her. My mama is a recipe passed down through generations. And I just pray my children will have full plates before she is called to grace. Amen. Pray her eyes will not be candied wrappers shut before she ever has a chance to meet them. But my mama, she be stubborn like jawbreakers sometimes. So I sit Waiting, making pools of apologies, hoping she will forgive me enough to take care of herself. Because this ain't no candy land's child's play. And though disease is hard for anyone to swallow, this ain't no sugar pill placebo. Because we know diabetes, it won't just go away. And still... My mama be like, baby, everything gonna be okay. My mama with a smile made of sugar cane as I, I can't help but fear her decay. The words of Lady Brian as we get ready to sign off here on Life in the Balance, an original production of WYPR. You can hear this show at 1 p.m. and again at 9 p.m. on the first Wednesday of the month. And you can hear all of our episodes archived online at wypr.org slash life in the balance. Life in the Balance is produced and edited by Katie Marquette. For 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Aaron Hinkin. Thanks for listening.